Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Bioptimizer's Breakthrough Magnesium. Magnesium is responsible for powering over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. It has been estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient in magnesium. Often, people don't recognize that there are at least seven types of magnesium. Most magnesium supplements contain one or two forms of these seven types. Bioptimizers has formulated their magnesium supplement to contain all seven forms of magnesium. Breakthrough Magnesium has a select packages available for up to 40% off when combined with our custom 10% discount code, which will be activated by entering the coupon code HUMAN10 when you head over to www.mag breakthrough.com forward slash human. All links and codes will be included in the show notes. Now on to the next topic. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the HPO podcast. Uh, This one, I'm here solo and the purpose or focus for this particular episode is going to be just kind of an outline of the preparation I did getting ready for the Desert Solstice Track Invitational, which is a 24-hour timed event. So the reason I want to kind of do a recap of this training buildup before the race itself is because it's been it's just new for me. I've never uh, done what I would consider like a specific 24-hour buildup in my training. I've done some 24-hour events both for to target something shorter within it. So say like, see how far I can get in 12 hours or how fast I can do hundred miles. And I've had a couple events that I was intending to be out there for 24 hours and it just ended early for me. So those particular events were kind of unique in that I jumped into them at the back end of a hundred mile training plan. So I didn't really feel like I've ever really tested what I would consider a very specific structured plan specifically designed for the 24 hour. And with that in mind and not having any races kind of before it or during the training block and things like that. So I kind of want to touch on some of the hows and whys of what I did. Some of the things that I noticed that were different since some of this was new experiences for me Um, and just kind of highlight some of that stuff. So folks who are interested can, can uh, get a glimpse into kind of like what I thought about it and how it went and all that stuff. So Uh, first off, um, I will share, if you're interested in kind of my, my training philosophy in general, I did do a recap on kind of my hundred mile training strategy. 
So from a philosophical standpoint, the, the same ideas are in place, regardless of whether it's 100 miles or 24 hours. The way I structure it just going to be a little different so that the specific needs are met at the right time. And I'll kind of explain a little bit more of that. But for those of you who kind of want to kind of compare and contrast a little bit and kind of see what I mean by that, I would encourage you to go back and check out, I believe it was episode 212, if I'm not mistaken, um, that I did the 100 mile recap or the 100 mile training uh, structure. So uh, if you're interested, that's where you'll find it. Um, this plan was the highest volume I've ever hit. I had a couple weeks where I went above 200 miles and you know, before this training block, the furthest I had gone in a single week uh, that I can recall was, I believe, 178 miles I did. And that was all, quite a while ago. It was uh, back in, I think, 2012, I, somewhere around there, so really early on in my ultra running career. So other than that, I had hit 170 miles once in a 100 mile buildup back in 2015. So there was some uncharted territory here from a volume standpoint. And I'll explain why a little bit as we go through this, that I pushed out to those levels of volume as we kind of go through things. Um, so the stuff that kind of remained the same with this one and some of the other plans is I kind of do still stuff that's least specific to race day specifics earlier on the plan. So I'm thinking like four to six months out a lot of times with this. This year was a little unique or this particular event preparation was a little unique since with all the COVID-19 stuff, there was just so much uncertainty as to what races were going to be available and what was on the horizon. So when you think of this now, this race being December 12th, the beginnings of this training could start kind of mid-year with that kind of a timeline. So if you rewind back to like June, July uh, and early August, there just really wasn't a whole lot of certainty as to what was going to be available. So what I kind of did back then is knowing that the beginning of my training plans are going to be fairly consistent or fairly similar irregardless of whether it's a hundred mile or 24 hour, whatever ultra marathon it is. Uh, I just started the process knowing that once I did find an event I wanted to target and was confident it would probably get off the ground. Uh, I would be able to kind of change gears to the specifics of it and, and peak for it, so to speak. So the first, uh, the first few weeks was a lot of kind of short intervals. I really like kind of three minute intervals, but really my kind of target range is like two to four minutes in those. Uh, I'm really trying to just build that kind of uh, VO or hit that VO2 max style of training, that short, fast interval stuff, stuff that you typically see maybe in kind of the peaking phase of like a five kilometer race where they're targeting their race specific pacing kind of closer to the race itself. And one of the reasons I like that is because I do think it's going to help kind of raise the ceiling on where my potential is aerobically. So uh, it also is just uh, since it's harder and faster, it's going to build a little more strength and it's going to build a little more resilience from, uh, you know, the strength standpoint, my muscles, my skeletal muscles system. When I get into kind of the high volume chronic cardio, so to speak stuff, that type of running like offers up a lot more potential for like overuse injuries and things. So I think building a good foundation with some harder, faster efforts isn't a bad idea as long as you don't overdo that and get hurt in that process. So for me personally, that's actually something I usually do have to keep an eye on because when I look at myself at the individual level, I tend to be a very big responder to volume uh, versus intensity. When I have gotten hurt historically, it's a lot of times when I'm doing the fast, short stuff. Uh, I've usually been able to just pile on tons of volume and not really have any hints of injuries cropping up and things like that. So uh, 
I just pay attention to those. If I notice that I'm overreaching a little bit on the short intervals, I'm just going to be a little more cautious around that phase of the training. And I might take a few more risks when it comes to the volume side of things in what will ultimately be the back end of this plan. So after those shorter intervals, I actually just kind of transition and just stretch those out a little bit and then hit some longer intervals. And I really like, you know, pretty much anywhere from eight to 20 minutes, actually 20 minutes is pretty rare, but eight to 12 is usually what I'll target for, um, these longer intervals. And then I'll also be doing what you call like a, maybe a tempo run. And these are all going to be focused on like the intensity at which I could sustain for about 60 minutes. So if I were to go out and run as fast as I could for 60 minutes, as evenly paced as possible, that, that is kind of close to the intensity around the intensity I'm kind of aiming for during, during this phase of training. And similar to like the short intervals, the longer intervals and the tempo runs, I'm such, I'm just trying to build volume each week at my exposure to it. So for the short intervals, I might start only doing three by like three minutes or maybe four by two minutes or three by four minutes or something like that. And then the next week I just might add a little bit. I might work up and I'm usually working up to somewhere between 20 to 30 minutes, kind of depending on how my body feels, how my splits are within that, that range. Usually if it's a three minute interval, I'm hitting, you know, right around uh, a kilometer, maybe a pinch past a kilometer. If I'm getting really fit near the end of that cycle, uh, and then I'm moving on usually at that point. So the longer intervals and the tempo runs, usually I'm talking between 60 to 90 minutes of total volume per week. So similar to the short intervals that might start out just 20 minutes the first week, then maybe it's uh, 30, the next then 40. And then I'm kind of building up and peaking at usually I don't go much more than 90 minutes at that intensity you know, on a weekly basis during that phase of training, unless I were to do an endurance race where that was the goal pace on race day, the goal intensity, then I would maybe build that up a little, a little more, but, uh, since it's not race specific intensity, uh, that's usually kind of where I, where I, where I end that buildup phase with, with that specific type of intensity. Uh, then I'm kind of moving on to what I call the peaking phase. So the peaking phase is where a lot of times my plans will differ and it's going to always be built around the specifics of the event I'm doing. So if I'm doing a hundred miler, on the track, I'm going to be targeting the pace and the intensity on a similar environment. So flat, hard surface, sometimes even actually on a track uh, type of environment. If it's going to be out on a trail, like, uh, like when I did a San Diego hundred last year, I'm going to be trying to do a lot of that intensity on terrain. That's fairly specific or as specific as I can find to the race course itself. Uh, so for this 24 hour kind of follow that same rule, it just, the intensity comes down because when you think about it with my hundred mile PR, being 1119 and my 12 hour distance being 104.88, I'm essentially going to be out there for twice. Well, I'm definitely gonna be out there for twice as long when you look at it from the 12 hour lens. So since I'm going to be out there twice as long, I have to pace myself appropriately in order to be able to try to manage that, that time frame, And that just brings the intensity down. When you add extra mileage or extra, extra time, you have to bring down your average intensity in order to make it sustainable. So that's where there was a big difference in my training that I hadn't really done before because this race, um, my goal here is I, I would say I have a pretty high, high goal for this, this particular event. Um, I'll talk a little bit about how I'm going to tier the goals as well. But when I'm looking at kind of the paces, I think I could potentially average, I'm kind of targeting between seven and a half to eight minute mile pace. So during this buildup, I'm just essentially trying to stack as much volume as I can tolerate and properly recover from at that intensity. So as long as I'm kind of fitting pretty close within like seven and a half to eight minute mile pace, I'm going to keep adding volume 
and keep adding volume until I get to a point where I start noticing that, you know, maybe my pace is falling off at the same effort. Maybe I go out the same effort on say a Thursday and it's an 815 mile pace. And I think, okay, uh, the same effort produced a significantly slower pace. That's my body telling me I need to step back, let things catch up and then kind of continue to what I like to call micro stress and kind of work the way up. So that's, that's kind of how I end up getting to the volumes I end up targeting is by kind of following that, that general rule. Usually what I'll do though, um, to give you a little more context around that, if I have just like one random bad run where I go and I'm just feeling miserable and I'm running maybe a minute per mile slower, I won't always just completely take back that next run. I'll just be like way more aware of kind of how I'm feeling when I'm doing on that next run. If I replicate that on the next run, then I'm, that's a sign like two in a row is usually a sign for me. Okay. I need to at least scale back for a day or maybe drop one of the workouts that I'm going to do in order for my body to catch up. Uh, and if it continues to progress, then it's time for a deload week, which is a kind of whole week where I'll regress volume and intensity, uh, fairly drastically in order for my body to kind of catch up. The uniqueness about this particular thing, since there wasn't really a whole lot of uh, intensity in the peaking phase, given that my, you know, my average pace for this race is going to be quite slow, even if I'm on world record play pace, that it's just a volume reduction, essentially, then during a deload week. So uh, I'm going to quick run through just kind of the peaking phase. It actually, my first peak week target uh, was October 5th to the 11th, and I hit 160.1 miles. Um, the following week I hit 172.4 miles. The third week almost looks like a bit of a deload. It was 141.77, but that was 141.77, uh, with just a six day training cycle for that week. So I took a full day off on Tuesday that week. Reason being is, uh, I just had a, you know, I had a really poor night of sleep, so I didn't want to dig myself in a hole this early in the training block. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to give myself a full day's rest, catch up on the sleep and then kind of go at the rest of this week as if that didn't happen and then let the volume take care of itself. So when you look at my actual runs for that week of October 19th through 25th, you'll see like, okay, they all, the runs all look about the same per day. The average daily mileage looks the same if you take out that off day. So structurally speaking, I basically did like a three week buildup there. So after that week, um, I had one more week to add to this. So this, this first four weeks was a four week buildup before I did my first official deload week. And in October 26th to number first ended up being my peak week for the training cycle. It was 203.01 miles. Um, that one had a, a peak training day of 37.7 miles was a solo run. And that was actually uh, pacing Nicole at Javelina. So thanks to Nicole, I got that big long solo in on, on that Saturday at the end of that week. And that really helped kind of boost me up to the 203 mark uh, for that peak mileage week. Uh, but like I said, I do build in those deload weeks when I kind of sense, okay, I'm getting to that point where I've stressed my system enough and I need to really just let things kind of resettle in. And the really interesting thing I found out about this training, because remember, this is all kind of new, this pace targeting, this level of volume is something that I haven't done before. And when I got to the end of the week, I thought physically, I didn't feel that beat up. I was noticing that my pace was starting to slow a little bit, or I was working a little harder maybe to target those 7.30 to 8-minute paces on some of my runs. Uh, but I didn't feel like it was like really like painful physically to do it. I thought like psychologically or mentally is where I needed the big break because it just got 
kind of fatiguing after four weeks to like wake up in the morning, you know, go out for like say 15 to 20 miles and then, you know, do some work and then go back out in the afternoon for another eight to 10 mile run. And then kind of know after you finish that afternoon run, all right, in about 12 hours, I'm going to wake up and I have to repeat this process again and repeat and repeat and repeat. And I think what ends up happening a lot of times when you do that over and over again is if you don't kind of have like a clear end point to that, it gets a little discouraging mentally. So sometimes like I'll plan the deload weeks roughly and say like three to four weeks, I'm going to do a deload week just so I know as I'm moving through some of those harder training blocks that, okay, there's the target. There's the insight. That's a mini goal within the plan to kind of reach towards and, and try to hit. And that gives me kind of that, that sense of, okay, there's something I can accomplish within this. And I'm not just you know, dreading the next eight weeks or the entire final piece to the puzzle, so to speak. So that deload week was probably one of my most aggressive deload weeks ever done from a percentage standpoint. I dropped down to 53.78 miles. So when you think about that, if you look at it from just like a deload from that peak week, it's essentially, I ran about 25% of, uh, um, of the, of the mileage I did for that final one. But when you look at it from an average between all four of those weeks, um, it's probably a little, little closer to say like, I think like maybe around 40%. Um, but that's a big, that's a big regression. Usually in my deload weeks, I'll drop a volume by say 30%, um, sometimes 40% if I really feel like I need a little bit of extra rest. And I'm taking it day by day too. Basically I'm treating deload weeks a lot of times like I do like the running I'll do during an unstructured period where if I feel good, I'll, I'm not afraid to go out and run some miles. But if I feel like tired, unmotivated, lethargic, um, or just generally low energy, I'll, I'm not afraid to take an extra day off during the deload week. I'm not afraid to bail out on a run early and that sort of stuff. So that 53.78 miles is just, just kind of what felt right throughout the course of that week to kind of fully recover and, and uh, reset for the next buildup, the final buildup. Because this peak was essentially an eight week peak with four weeks of peak or buildup in the beginning, the deload, and then the three week final build. Uh, and I wanted to make sure I was really motivated and excited to go for that final three weeks to kind of push into to the taper. Um, so coming back, I that first week back was 190.34 and that was November 9th to the 15th. Uh, I, that, that week felt really good. I, you know, I think the deload week was, was, was great for a motivation standpoint. I, I really felt like I wanted to get out there and kind of put the work in, uh, physically, like I said, I didn't really feel like I was all that beat up. I spent a lot of the deload week doing so a lot of stretching and mobility and things like that, just to kind of make sure my range of motion was staying intact. Cause you do get, when you're running slower than you normally would for that level of volume, you, you are kind of changing your mechanics slightly and you can get kind of tight within that range that you're doing. And if that range is maybe a little different than your, your typical running form or your faster paced running form, you just kind of notice you're a little more stiff and tight in certain areas. So I did spend some of that time kind of addressing those. Uh, the next week was my second biggest week of the entire training schedule. And I hit 200.6 miles um, that one felt really good too. I was, uh, pretty, ex actually pretty excited to head out to, um, or head into that last week of the, of the, of the peak there after that one. And, uh, didn't really have a whole lot of, uh, negatives. Uh, you know, one thing I noticed with the entire plan was there wasn't a sporadic like afternoon run where I'd feel like, oof, this is really kind of catching up to me. You know, I might have to like reconsider how much volume I do this week. 
But like I said before, usually what I do is I'd wait till that next morning, wake up and I would test kind of how I felt then. And if things kind of returned normal, uh, I, I would go with it. And if not, then I would just, uh, but I really didn't have any of any like double back-to-back rough days where I had to adjust other than earlier on when I took that day off because of, you know, poor sleep. Um, so that was exciting to me to know that I also was able to kind of get out on a track for some of my solo long runs that weekend. I did a 30 miler and a 25.1 miler at that end of that weekend on a track. And, you know, the reason I like to get on the track a bit is just because you're turning that much on a 400 meter surface. It is kind of uh, important, I think, to kind of get the mechanics and some of those stabler stabilizer muscles really used to that. And also just to sense what the pace is going to be like on the specific environment, because it sounds kind of silly, but if you run on a flat road and on a rubber track, you can feel a little difference from your perceived effort and your actual pace. So it gives you a little bit of a gauge as to like, okay, am I on the right track in terms of what type of pacing I should be targeting or, you know, how realistic or unrealistic are my goals and, and, you know, that sort of stuff. So going into the final week, I going into it, I actually thought, I would probably get close to 200 again uh, after I had finished that weekend back-to-back solo long runs. And I ended up not hitting 200. I hit 181.12. And part of that was because I got to Tuesday morning and I noticed what I said before. I had two runs in a row where my pace felt like it was dipping back a little bit and that I was going to need to Uh, I didn't, when I was this close to the taper and I felt like I was really getting pretty close to feeling confident and ready for the race. I didn't want to overreach too much and go past like what I've said before. And in previous episodes about that micro stressing kind of concept. So, um, on, on that Tuesday, I did a 15 mile in the morning and I took the afternoon off. So that kind of dropped my volume down a little bit by not having uh, a few extra miles on that morning run. And then additionally that afternoon run. Um, it, it really felt good to do that when I just taking that afternoon off that next morning on Wednesday and then Thursday, that following day, I felt really, really good. I was hitting like closer to my lower end of my goal target. So, uh, I knew even just like that one afternoon off told me like, okay, a little bit of rest was a long rate ways for me personally in these kind of higher volume, lower intensity phases of training. Um, so that was kind of a good sign for me. So I kind of pushed on through the rest of that week and ended up doing, um, doing a, ending it, ending the peaking phase with a 30.1 mile run on the track, uh, that, that Sunday. And, and then we came into the taper. So the taper for this is two weeks and t- technically I'm only partly way through it. Cause we got a couple days yet before race day, but the first week of the taper, November 30th to December 6th was 75 miles. Uh, that's you, that's a pretty big, kind of like the deload week, a pretty big drop in percentage from what I'll normally do, uh, relative to the average volume. Part of that is, like I said, I was hitting some historic high volume. Also, uh, it's a little different because I'm not juggling two variables with speed or intensity and volume. Cause this is basically just volume reduction at this point. Uh, so I, I treated it though. Like I did the deload week ran what I felt felt good. Didn't kind of force anything had one day completely off on Monday, which I thought was going to be just a good idea in general, just take a full day of rest and let everything kind of catch up after that final piece to the puzzle in the peaking phase. And, uh, and then kind of start going from there as to what felt right. And um, yeah, so I'm was really excited at the end of that week to kind of 
have a week where I didn't have to go out and run, you know, every afternoon and could just kind of go and run a relatively short distance in the morning and kind of be done. So it was kind of like the deload week earlier. It was a much bigger mental reset for me than physical is, is the way it kind of felt. And then this final week, I would say Wednesday morning, I went out for a run and I felt like, okay, now the taper really is set in. I'm starting to feel like really fresh, really recovered. And I love it when that happens. I really like to kind of start feeling like I got that pop back in my legs or that freshman, that excitement when I'm like maybe three, three-ish days out from the event itself, because that gives me time to kind of build momentum and confidence. But it's not like so early that I feel like, well, maybe I should have done an extra week of harder training or, or bigger training because I'm kind of all ready to go a week out from the race or something like that. So that's kind of how the, the general structure of the plan went and kind of my perception on it. Couple other things I noticed that were really interesting since I was targeting these really high numbers of volume. Uh, I noticed that there was a lot more experiences during runs where I felt like for a couple miles, like, should I cut this short or should I stop doing this? Should I like, you know, regress? Maybe I'm aiming too high. And what I noticed is when I would push through that, it gave me a really good insight of what you experience on basically any one of these long ultras, which is like, you'll hit a point where you feel like, why am I out here? What am I doing? And the, the worst thing that can happen in those scenarios is get in this mindset where you think it's only going to get worse. It's going to progressively get worse. And if that happens, say at mile 60 of hundred miles, it's just really hard to wrap your head around 40 more miles of progressively more pain and more suffering. So the cool thing about this block is I had a lot of experiences where I'd have like a little bit of a rough patch for say a mile or two, and then I feel great after it. So to me, these were all kind of like little dress rehearsals or little pieces of experience that I'm going to be able to lean on on race day when I hit those points during the 24 hour race itself, just to reflect back on and say, okay, this happened in training. I just need to stay the course, get through the next couple of miles, you know, make sure I'm paying attention to nutrition, make sure I'm paying attention to hydration, electrolytes and that stuff. And then, you know, wait for that kind of push through and just remind myself that, uh, not only does it not progressively get worse, it can get better. And you can even sometimes find yourself, you know, laughing about how you felt so drastically worse before. And then you had gone on a ran 10 more miles or something like that. So, um, let's see, we got, uh, we, we hit on taper, we hit on kind of the, the training structure, the core specific stuff. Um, a little bit about the volume responder. When I talk about that, you know, this is an interesting thing. I always get excited about kind of as a coach and an athlete is, you know, folks tend to respond differently to different workouts. It's not always as kind of cookie cutters you'd maybe like where you go, you know, same amount of intensity with this person and same amount of volume with them too. You have scenarios where like you get someone who can just tolerate a massive amount of volume, uh, but struggles a bit to maybe recover, has a harder time recovering from intensity sessions. You get folks on the other side of the spectrum too, where if they push up anywhere near the type of volume I'm hitting, they're going to get injured. They're going to you know, lose motivation, feel like they're not recovering, but they can go out and just bang out short intervals and, you know, like threshold type runs that like those tempo runs, those long intervals that I talked about and bounce back from them. And, you know, they're great candidates for like block training on those speed workouts where you do back to back days of that type of a session. Cause they just bounce back from them quick. So it's like, just, those are kind of two polar ends of the spectrum. Most people will probably kind of have a, a fair balance there, but um, it is interesting to see that. And um, I definitely kind of learned more about myself um, even though I was already fairly like in tune with the fact that I'm a, a pretty big volume responder given historic buildups and things like that. Uh, but it was just kind of like one more kind of stretch forward with that kind of an experience, which was interesting for me to see. Um, nutrition is another interesting thing I want to talk about with this one, because I talk about this a lot. And I think 
uh, I always worry that I confuse people with my nutritional strategy in general, because, you know, you can, if you just cherry pick a week out of my year, my nutrition plan might look a fair bit different than if you cherry pick a different week. And, you know, what I like to tell people is you have to pay attention to context with this. And if you are listening to someone speak about nutritional practices with um, endurance running or sport in general, and they're saying, this is the way that we should do this, or this is like the only way to do it. You want to ask questions about that, because if they're referring to a specific context, they may be right. There might be one fairly proven way to kind of do it for most people. But if they, if, if you're listening to like endurance as a whole, and they're saying, you know, you have to have moderate to high carbohydrate or um, keto is going to be best at all of them. Be cautious of that because they're kind of telling you half of the half of the truth or half the puzzle there. So or just pride, maybe they're just accidentally like uh, generalizing when they're thinking along the lines of more specific and, and they're just not saying it. So like uh, specifics are huge And the specifics here for me is this is the longest race I will do uh, or have done. And, uh, that means it's going to be the lowest intensity race. So for me, as someone who practices a low carbohydrate diet in general, um, I periodize my carbohydrates. So I will ramp them up during peak training phases. Uh, I've talked about that uh, quite a bit, so I won't go into too much detail there, but, um, the difference here is since the intensity is so low when I'm running like seven and a half to eight minute mile pace, you know, my heart rate is usually under 130 beats per minute. So I'm burning like very, very high amounts of fat, very little muscle glycogen being tapped into at that, in, at that heart rate, that intensity for me. So I did not need to be hitting carbohydrates during my peak training as high as I would for say a hundred miler or a 50 mile race. In fact, I think the highest gram per day I did during that eight week buildup was a hundred. And I was actually at 50 or below for huge portions of it too. And that it was interesting to me to kind of like, just kind of stick to what I get. So we consider a little closer to like kind of strict ketogenic diet for that long period of time during a peaking phase. Cause usually it's during my peaking phase is where I'll be pulling kind of a little bit away from strict keto or a stricter keto and, and, you know, sometimes ramping my carbs up to say like 20% of my intake um, and in hitting some higher for something, for example, I documented some stuff for the tunnel Hill hundred mile in 2018. And, you know, I, I was hitting sometimes even 200 grams, carbohydrate during, you know, a big day for that, for that buildup. So it was a fairly significant reduction. Um, I kept some carbohydrates around. I didn't want to go zero carb because uh, I'm not going to go carb free on race day. So I don't want to like completely eliminate, uh, you know, a macronutrient that I'm going to try to use on race day. So uh, that that's just kind of where I found it falling. It was, it was both interesting and kind of fun kind of experiment to kind of, to go through. For folks curious about kind of like what foods made up those, um, man, I went heavy on eggs. I was eating like a dozen plus eggs some days. And when you think about it, I mean, there's, these days are like, it wasn't uncommon that I was hitting 27 to 30 miles on any given day during some of those big weeks. So like, you know, I might, after my, my first run in the morning, usually I would have like a cup of coffee with some S fuels, life powder, um, and like S fuels, uh, life bar and then head out for the run and then come back and have like six eggs with like four ounces of cheese, um, some nut butters, uh, olive oil, almond oil, coconut oil. Um, you know, th those would be a, a, a big kind of staple kind of in my first meal after a run on a lot of days. And, um, it was interesting too, because like 
I found that like with that level of volume, my energy requirements were just that much higher. And it was just way more palatable to eat things that were really dense in calories. So like, that's where like a lot more oils, butters, coconut oil type stuff, um, olive oil. Um, we just happened to have like a, like four jars of almond oil, um, from, I don't even remember where we got them, but we had them. So I was just like, might as well start having, having these, it was just a way to add some calories. It didn't take up a lot of space in my stomach because say I finished my morning run between nine 30 and 10, and I'm going to head back out at like three or four in the afternoon. I didn't want to have like a whole bunch of bulk in my stomach. I wanted to make sure I felt like pretty light on my feet still. And not like I'm still trying to digest the food I had been eating prior. So high energy, uh, dense foods were kind of the name of the game for, for this buildup for me. You know, a lot of my dinners is where I would kind of have a little bit more, more like, uh, fiber foods and things like that. So the carbohydrates I would have, I would maybe have some potatoes, beets, steamed broccoli. Um, I did, I did a fair bit of like steamed cabbage and stuff during that. Um, uh, I'd have some honey from time to time. All that wasn't going to add a whole lot of bulk. That's fairly refined. So, uh, you know, those were just not all I ate during it, but it was definitely things that I found were showing up in my, in my, my training, uh, quite a bit throughout that kind of that big buildup. So I will mention like, don't, uh, project that onto what I would normally necessarily do. Uh, you know, I definitely love those foods. They oftentimes are foods I'll use year round and have historically, but, uh, you know, everything's going to be specific to what I'm specifically training for. And this was, was very new. So it didn't necessarily reflect the norm for me historically. We'll see how that kind of compares to some of these future stuff. One of the things I'm really excited about with this particular event is it kind of brings me back to my early days of ultra running where I'm going to go out there and I'm going to experience something I've never experienced before 24 hours of running. Um, I'm excited to kind of put a mark down for that just to see like where I'm at with that. And it's an event I want to target uh, a bunch of times as I go forward. So it's going to be fun to kind of draw that mark and look at what worked, what didn't work, do a deep dive into what I felt translated well from training into race day and ultimately make adjustments and learn from some mistakes and uh, focus on some of the things that I thought went well and kind of go through that process again, which is really the exciting thing for me about about ultra running is that, that kind of process of learning from what, like post analysts and things like that. So, um, let's see goals goals. So I kind of have it tiered into three kind of main goals. And, uh, one of the reasons I'm doing that is I want to make sure I get the full 24 hour experience. So if I go out there with just an A goal and I find out at hour 16, that A goal is basically off the table there's going to be like very little incentive. It's going to be very difficult to stay out there if I have no reason to be there. So I'm setting multiple goals just to make sure that I have the motivation, the desire to be out there. Uh, based on my training, I don't think 180 plus miles is unreasonable. I think that's a possible high end goal. I think a lot, if not everything's going to have to go right to get to that. Um, but it's a goal I feel confident enough as being possible that I'm going to put it on, on, on the sheet of uh, this is what I want to try to hit. You know, Giannis Kuros has the world record for 24 hours. He ran 188.67 miles, I believe, um, when he when he broke the world record. And I mean, it's it's in my opinion one of the more stout ultra marathon world records out there. So it's uh, it's it's not going to be an easy one to get on the on a first first try. So uh, 
I'm, I'm mindful that everything's going to have to go right in order to kind of surpass that. But if things do, then I think I have a good shot at it. So uh, we'll have to see. Um, yeah, a, a little more on Giannis. I think he has the top 11 times <laughs> in the 24 hour or distances in the 24 hour event. So he's the only human to ever eclipse 180. So that's kind of why the 180 plus is one of my A goals is I would love to be the second human to ever eclipse 180 miles. Uh, that's kind of where I'm coming up with that stuff. So uh, it's also why I'm targeting seven 30 to eight minute pace in training is because eight minute flat average would be 180 miles for this event. Next goal would be the American record is held by Mike Morton. He ran 172 and a half miles. And uh, you know, it's, it's just a good target. I think it's, it's, it's below the a goal enough that it's not too close to it, where if I fall off the a goal, I'll, I could quickly fall off the B goal too. Um, so I think it's just a really realistic kind of spot to pick for a B goal. Uh, it, it, I think it'll be motivating too, to think like, okay, American record that, that just kind of resonates in your head. I think a little bit better than, you know, just a random number. So that's kind of the B goal there to try to hit that or go past that. Um, so it'll be a spot I'm targeting during the day. Uh, personally, you know, I've got so much respect for Mike Morton. He's like one of my favorite ultra runners, uh, out there historically, and I think he probably could have hit 180 if he had taken more cracks at the 24 hour distance. I think he only did it once. So um, when you look at the history of 24 hour racing, it's very rare that people run their best or even close to their best on their first attempt. In fact, a lot of times people have to do multiple shots before they kind of hit that, that peak goal of theirs. And, and uh, um, you know, I think Mike probably could have gotten up into that 180 if he had uh, decided to, to target that specific event with a lot a lot more or a lot more, more focus versus uh, a lot of the other stuff. I mean, Mike's Mike did so many different races. He's won the Western States 100. He was third at Western States on one of the highly competitive years when he was in his forties. So like um, he's a beast. Uh, I have a lot of respect for him and it would be, it'd be really cool to surpass his mark from that. Um, next goal is going to be just to make sure I'm out on that track moving for that 24 hour time frame. If I blow up epically, and have to walk the last eight hours, I'm going to be out there walking the last eight hours. So um, I really am motivated to make sure I have an exact distance for 24 hours on paper so that I can build from that. And I, I want that experience so that I can really honestly try to improve and learn from what goes well and what doesn't go well. And I feel like even if I uh, would run say 22 hours and then stop, um, I'm going to feel like I don't really have that full picture. So worst case scenario, I guess, is I blow up and start walking a ton. Um, but, uh, that that's kind of my, my three tier goal there for the race itself. So, all right, folks, that's what I got for this. I hope you enjoy it. Definitely shoot me any questions that you might have, um, related to this or for future episodes and things you can, uh, you know, listen to the show intro and outro for contact information and things like that. But otherwise, uh, wish me luck at Desert Solstice. You can tune in and follow the event on the Era Vipa website uh, or just Google Desert Solstice Track Invitational and you can find it pretty quickly there. And they'll have a link. They do a live feed video and live updates. Um, and sometimes I think they even have some commentary too. So um, it can be boring to watch, but it's fun to check in, I think, from time to time. And and see if I'm either crushing it or fading it. But either way, I'll be on that 400 meter loop for 24 hours, December 12th, 8 a.m. to December 13th to 8 p.m. 
Also, I'll put one more message in here for folks. Since this is going to go up right before the race, I am doing a huge giveaway on my Instagram account. It's over $700 worth of gear. It's essentially the way it's, it's framed is it's going to be the winner gets my racing kit. Like not the one I wore, but like a replica essentially. So like you'll get a pair of shoes, you'll get the clothes I, I'm going to wear on race day. Um, buff, like the hat and arm sleeves and stuff that I'll use. Uh, you'll get a uh, hundred, I think it's close to a hundred dollars worth of the nutrition I'll use on race day from S fuels. You'll get, um, some of the, uh, some of the supplementary type stuff I do with egg weights. They're putting together a package for it. Um, yeah. Koros is putting up a hundred dollar gift card for their GPS watches, squirrels, nut butter, which is an anti-chafe, um, lubricant that, you know, I love to use on these long events. Cause you're just going to rub in places and that will help kind of keep that burning blisters and chafing from occurring. So they're putting up a hundred dollar gift card. Uh, so head over to my Instagram page. If you listen to this and enter, basically it's just a prediction contest. See if you can predict how many miles I'm going to cover. If you get it right, then that's 700 plus dollars worth of gears going, going to you. So definitely check that out if you're interested, but otherwise everyone have a great rest of the day and, and wish me luck. Thank you for listening to this episode of the human performance outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at zackbitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.